rid of this body or Chris will go to prison. And we all know what happens in those prison showers. I've seen Oz. Scrum, scrum here, scrum, scrum there. Whether you're right or wrong, a man can wash another man in the very old land of Oz. Five hours to dawn and I gotta be in a goddamn glass box with the king of sticks. And you know, you know, you're so fucking clean and righteous, man. You said, I, I, I got demons clawing at my ass. The streets I was selling dope, as bad as any of those homeboys. Fucking kill the cop! Fuck you, governor. And what is your problem, man? You fucking ass. I wish I could, man. I got potatoes to peel. Yeah, you give me a phone number and an address. Word. Bet you wouldn't mind that. Yeah, thanks for the stimulating conversation, guys. You guys like goats. You know, you got to bring everything down to the level of a goat. Titties and humping. Sex offender. Shit all over, man. It's not normal. I am black. I am a Muslim and I am a man. And sometimes those two things, they won't. It's about the whole horrid judicial system. Hello everyone and welcome to Inside Oz, the world's only Oz Review Podcast. As always, I'm your host Neil Thompson and let's address the elephant in the room straight from the off. Sorry for the lateness of this episode. I like to try and keep to my regular two-week release schedule for you guys. However, with this Series 2 finale being such a whopper of an episode, it just wasn't possible this time around. There's so much to cram into this episode, as well as the series summary, that if I was to try and put it out two weeks after the last one, it would have been such a rush job, and I wanted things to be perfect for you guys. I also had a little time away for my wife's birthday, where we went and fed some elephants at the zoo, which was fucking awesome. And I've also been delving back into the Toolback catalogue after they went onto Spotify before the release of their new album, which might not be out yet, it might have just come out, it all depends when I manage to get this episode released. So, without further delay, the series finale, Series 2, Episode 8, Escape from Oz. Originally broadcast on August 31st, 1998, an old thing at 8.5 on IMDb, the episode was written by Tom Fontana and directed by Jean Desgonzac. Back in the director's chair for the third time on the show, and for the first time since the Series 1 finale, A Game of Checkers. Much like with Series 1, the song that was at the number 1 at the start of the series remained in the number 1 spot at the series' conclusion, with Brandy and Monica's The Boy Is Mine in its 13th week at number 1 in the US. The UK singles chart was a little more interchangeable this series, with five different acts holding the top spot. Boyzone being the current holders with No Matter What in its third week at the top of the singles charts, and The Cause were at number 1 in the album charts for the third week too. So there was a three-week spell with somewhat of an Irish invasion of the UK charts going on. So Augustus, tell us, what does the word escape mean? Escape. What a word. What a concept. The dictionary says escape means to break loose, to bust free. (laughs) Yeah. There are all kind of ways to get the fuck out of ours. So Act 1 gets underway with Augustus defining the word escape and the lights coming on in Oz as Rebido and Boost Mallers continue to dig. Looks like they've lost track of time at some point because they have to quickly scramble to get the tiles back into place. The inmates get out of their pod to start the day, apart from Beecher who still seems to be struggling with Keller not being around. But Manus gathers them all together, much like when they all came back to M-City, which I thought was a good callback, and delivers the news about Diane transferring to Unit B, and that the new M-City supervisor is Officer Carl Metzger. 
Alright, alright, alright. I promise I won't sing again. Metzger introduces himself saying that some may know him from AdSeg, and that his reputation is that he is tough but fair, and says he won't take shit from anyone, but he doesn't intend to give any either. It's short and sweet as everyone goes about their day, and Metzger actually does a really good job of setting himself up as just being a normal guard. If we hadn't had that scene with Richie Hanlon a few episodes ago, you would just think that this was a by-the-book staff member coming in to take over from Diane. So as I'm sure you'll all remember from a couple of episodes ago when I blessed you with my sultry singing tones, Carl Metzger is played by Bill Fagerbacki. Born October 4th, 1957, Bill was born in Fontana, California, but moved to Rupert, Idaho at a young age. A second-generation American of Norwegian descent, making him perfect for the role of the tall, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Carl Metzger, Bill attended Minico High School in Minidoka County, where he made his theatre debut in a campus production of the Stephen Schwartz musical Godspell, a role which Bill admitted to only taking because a girl he had a crush on at the time had a role in it as well. Quote, I only did that because of a girl named Sherry Borchard. She was in them, and I had a major crush on her. I never had any thoughts of being an entertainer. Bill was also a star athlete for the school's Spartan sports teams, playing football, basketball, as well as competing on the athletics track. After graduating high school in 1975, Bill was offered a number of scholarships to play college football for a number of schools involved in the Pacific Eight, now known as the Pacific 12 Conference, who compete in a number of sports at the NCAA Division I level. Bill, however, decided to stay close to home and attended the University of Idaho, where he played as defensive linesman for the Idaho Vandals in his sophomore year. Playing 7 out of the 11 games that year, the Vandals went 5-2 in games that Bill started, and 7-4 and overall, their first winning season for over 5 years. The following year, the Vandals' head coach, Ed Troxell, planned to move Bill to the offensive line. However, a knee injury in preseason ended Bill's athletic career, and the Vandals went back to their losing ways, going 3-8 in 1977, which saw Troxell fired, then 2-9 in 1978. And one of those wins was due to a forfeit due to the opposing team no-showing. With his athletic career over, Bill turned his attention to earning his degree, as well as joining the Delta Tau Delta fraternity, and earned his Bachelor of Arts degree in Theatre Arts in 1981. Bill then attended South Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, where he gained a master's degree before moving to New York, finding regular work in plays, musicals, and a number of commercials over the next five years. After appearing in minor roles in TV movies in the mid to late 80s, Bill's acting breakthrough came in 1989 when he landed the role of Dalby Dubinsky in ABC's Coach, a character he based on an assistant coach that he had at Idaho University, and appeared in 199 out of the 200 episodes made up to the show's conclusion in 1997. In addition to on-screen acting, Bill has an extensive career in voice acting, often playing characters who are a bit dim-witted. In 1994, he voiced in 13 episodes of the cartoon spin-off of the movie Beethoven, playing both Caesar and Roger's dad, Walt Disney's Gargoyles, as well as its spin-off, Gargoyles the Goliath Chronicles, playing the part of Broadway, and also starred in 13 episodes of the short-lived Dumb and Dumber animated series, playing the part of Harry Dunn. In 1996, he took the starring role of Alan Parrish in the animated spin-off of Jumanji, which ran for 40 episodes, and 1998 worked with Disney again in the animated series of Hercules, playing the part of Cyclops, before appearing here on Oz. We'll come back to Karl Metzger in a little while, but in the meantime, Mac has found his way into Rebidome Boost Mali's pod, and is looking for the hull leading to the tunnel. The two of them enter and ask what the hell's going on, and Mac asks where is it? Boost Malis, wearing his train driver's hat again, tries to play dumb and asks what Mac means, but Mac isn't in the mood for any games and again asks where the tunnel is. 
There's another member of the Aryans with him, but I don't think we actually find out his name, and I don't recall ever seeing him on the show before. Looking online, there is a Robert Philip Marcus who went uncredited playing the part of an Aryan, who I'm assuming this is. As he looks a bit like a rubbish Stone Cold Steve Austin lookalike, I'm just going to call him Steve from here on out. Mac presses Boost Mallers up against the wall, saying they've been watching as Rebido shows them where the tunnel is. A smart move by Rebido, knowing when to admit defeat, and Mac and Steve can't believe their eyes when he shows them the tunnel. He asks them how far along are they. Boost Mallers reckons that by tomorrow they should be on the other side of the prison wall. Mac says that when they go, he and Steve are going to go with them. Showing Mac to be a bit of a dumb shit, Rebido points out that they'll be locked away in their pods because they'll be leaving at night. Mac then says that they'll switch pods, and when Boost Mallers protests, he threatens to tell the guards. He mentioned that they'd been watching Rebido and Boost Mallers, but he doesn't say how long for, and what would he have done if he'd left it another couple of days and Rebido and Boost Mallers had already escaped? He really hadn't thought any of this through at all. Rebido takes charge and says that if Mac can organise the exchange, then the tunnel is theirs. Busmalis voices his concern, but Rebido tells him to shut up. Again, it's a smart move by Rebido to just let Mac have the tunnel, because there's no way you can take Mac at his word. Mac and Steve leave the pod, and Busmalis says that he can't let those Nazis go through Lizzie, and that it would be like they were raping her. I absolutely love that he's named the tunnel. I know he said that he treats his tunnels like women, but to actually give it a name was great. I'd love to know how many names they tried out before settling on Lizzie as well. Maybe there's some footage on a cutting room floor somewhere of Tom just saying different names each time before they settled on the Lizzie take. Rebido tells him that in all his years in Oz, he's learned one rule, to accept the hand that you're dealt, and that either way they'll lose the tunnel, so it would be better to let it go and start again. Hopefully they'll get a pod on the ground floor, otherwise they're kinda stuck, and I don't think that Mac was in a pod on the ground floor. Later in the day, Mac approaches Metzger and shows him a tattoo that he has on his ribs, and says that he needs a favour. Metzger gives a little nod and we cut to him in the change room and we see that he has the same tattoo on his right shoulder. This symbol I couldn't find anywhere in my research and if I'm being perfectly honest, there's only so many times I'm going to allow neo-Nazi symbols to be part of my internet search history. The symbol itself seems to be a trident over the letter N. The trident appears in a number of symbols used by various political causes, and I use that term loosely, including the Nation and Revolution group in Spain, and the Neo-Solidarist Alternative Movement in Belgium. The closest I came to finding this symbol visually was from that of the Patriot of Ukraine group. However, they were not formed until 2005, long after the show was off the air. So this symbol could be an original design for the show, or a mixture of different symbols around at the time. Like I say, I'm only willing to donate so much time to neo-Nazi research. But if anybody does know if this is a pre-existing symbol, do get in touch. Why Metzger has this tattoo on his shoulder as well is really stupid placement on his part. At least Mac had the sense to have his in a place where it can be covered up. Metzger admittedly wears a uniform during the day, but someone is going to see that at some point. But then again, I think it's safe to say that neo-Nazis aren't exactly the sharpest knives in the drawer. Metzger tells McManus that he wants to move Rebido and Boos Mallis out of their pod, and McManus just says, yeah, fine. Metzger asks him, don't you want to know why? And McManus says that he trusts Metzger. Alarm bells should have been ringing right there as soon as Metzger asked about wanting to know why. It's poor form from McManus, and another example of the naivety that he's shown in the past. So Rebido and Boos Mallis switch pods with Mac and Steve, and Boos Mallis even says take care of her as some parting words. Mac calls them a pair of stupid fucks and high-fives with Steve. Cut to night time, and Metzger is making his way up the stairs in M-City, and for a second I thought he'd been pulling one hell of a shift as he introduced himself to the inmates at the start of the day, and now it's night. 
But then I remembered we had that scene with Mac and Boost Malley's mentioning about being past the prison wall tomorrow, so there must have been a passage of time somewhere. Mac waves bye-bye to Boost Malley's, who asks Rebido how he can be so calm. Rebido simply asks him, well, what would you have me do? So the Nazis are on the run as they make their way down into the tunnel, and they seem to have acquired some torches. I mean, fuck knows where they got those from. Boosmalis and Rebido lay in bed saying they should almost be there now, and Boosmalis sarcastically says that they should have told them about how they've weakened all the support beams and that the tunnel will collapse on top of them, before closing his eyes to drop off to sleep sporting a smug smile. We cut back into the tunnel with Mac and Steve making their way past one of the aforementioned support beams, but one of the clumsy dickheads knocks it out and it looks like they're done for as the camera shakes. But nothing happens, it's a good little fake out there. We then see Mac's crime flashback in which he and a number of other neo-Nazis are in a graveyard, desecrating a gravestone with a swash sticker before kicking it over. The groundskeeper tells him to stop, but he gets into a fight with Mac, which ends up with Mac impaling the man with a shovel. Mac is convicted of murder in the second degree, vandalism, hate crimes, and sentenced to 70 years, up for parole in 40. The man playing the groundskeeper here is also the same man that played one of the Muslims right at the start of the show. He's the guy that Saeed has to punch him in the face. Unfortunately, he went uncredited both times, so I can't find out his name. We cut back to the tunnel, and now the dirt is starting to fall, as Mac tells Steve to back up, but something tells me that isn't going to work. And soon enough, both men are buried under the dirt. Can't say that I was particularly sad to see Mac go here, he's only ever been a bit of a minor character, and he is one of the Nazis at the end of the day, so good riddance. The only question I had coming out of this whole segment was where did Booz Malley's get the wood for the support beams? So the next morning arrives and Metzger is fucking pissed. I've been here five minutes! I got two bodies on my floor! This is not the way shit's gonna happen with me here! We find one more hole! Who's going in it? I'm putting one of you goddamn cocksuckers in the next fucking hole we find! Who wants a shovel? Huh? Dig me the goddamn hole! You gonna dig me a hole? Go ahead! God damn it! Cut to McManus' office where he's grilling Rebido and Boost Malley's about the tunnel that was in what used to be their pod, as Metzger watches over things. Rebido says that it was Boost Malley's that dug the tunnel, but that he was under orders from Mac to do so, and that he had threatened to kill Boost Malley's. And he even turns to Boost Malley's and says, Didn't he? It was just missing him giving him a winky face. Boost Malley's is suddenly, Oh yes, that's what happened, the Nazi bastard. And it's another great comedy performance from Rebido and Boost Malley's. They're a fantastic double act. Metzger says that if that's true about Mac, then they should have come to either himself or McManus, but Rebido says that that's easy for you to say. The poor man was terrified. He says that Boost Malley's warned them of the dangers, but they were anxious to go. And Metzger thinks that Boost Malley's and Rebido should be punished regardless, but McManus dismisses them, saying that neither has a discipline problem. You can take it either way as to whether or not McManus has bought their story, but I like to think that he knows full well what has happened. And on this occasion, he's looking the other way because of who's involved. We've had this constant theme of McManus battling his moral code all throughout the second series, and had it been someone else, then maybe he would have reacted differently. Or maybe he's thinking that maybe Mac and Steve got what they deserved for intimidating the older inmates. I'd love to know what you guys took from this scene. Rebido and Boosmalis leave the office and look down to the ground floor where Miguel is wheeling Mac's corpse on a stretcher through M-City. Boosmalis removes his hat in a quote-unquote gesture of respect, as Rebido just about manages to hold in a giggle. This is another one of those moments where you have to sacrifice reality for entertainment, as obviously there is no way that two corpses would be on display like this en route to the morgue. They would have been placed in body bags, or at the very least covered up. 
But you sort of need it to happen this way so that you could have that little moment from Ribado and Boost Malice at the end. Speaking of the morgue, we head down there and we see that Augustus is taking a look at Mac's body. Poet walks in and they shake hands, and Poet says that working in the morgue is his new work assignment, calling it McManus' revenge for him screwing up on the outside. Augustus asks him what happened and that Poet was free, and while Poet agrees that he was free, he was also still a fiend for the drugs and spent all the money that he made from the Unheard America book on crack and then got into trouble with the dealers, and we see the part of his second crime flashback where he shot the man at the book signing. Poet claims that he was acting in self-defence, but Augustus says that he shot the guy six times, and Poet says that he had to make sure that the guy was dead. And I completely agree with Poet in that situation. If I was ever in need of acting in self-defence and I have to kill somebody in order to do it, I'm making sure that person's dead. Poet then asks Augustus what they do in the morgue, which explains why Augustus was down there in the first place. But how long has he been working down there? Last time we saw him working, he was in the dress factory, but then again, the Italians have been moved there from the kitchen, so Augustus must have been reassigned too, which seems a bit shit for him. Augustus explains their roles, but he seems to have taken a particular interest in one of the coffins, or caskets as you like to say in the US, and says that death is a lot like life in ours. We cut back to M-City, where Beecher is buying another bottle of alcohol, and I like these kind of sweeping shots we get sometimes, where we get these little reminders of the other stories that are going on. It just keeps things fresh in the consciousness. Augustus and Poet are bickering, saying, It'll work, and, nah, fuck off, it'll never work, before they sit down and talk with Kenny. Poet tells Kenny that Augustus has a plan to get out of Oz, and he's come up with the idea of escaping in one of the coffins. Kashin is sat at the next table, but he can't help having a listen as well as sharing his two cents as we close out Act 1. After they've discussed the plan, Augustus and Kenny continue to talk about it as McManus walks by and locks eyes with Poet, who gets up and walks away. But it was odd that Augustus and Kenny were so openly talking about escaping when McManus was so close by. Also says something about Kashin, because he's been like quite pally-pally with McManus throughout this series. He could have just gone, Hey Tim, Augustus is planning to escape. Also, a bit of dodgy audio in one of the shots where you can see Augustus talking about when he was bullshitting Schillinger about being mailed out, but you can clearly see that Harold isn't speaking any lines. It's not to sound too harsh, it happens sometimes, but that was pretty noticeable. It'll work, I'm telling you. It'll work. Yo, pup, what are you talking about? What'll work? Yo, check this out. When he got a plan, escape out of odds. What's up, Trap? What's up? Yo, we working stiff patrol, right? Right. So just now, we loaded those two Aryan fucks into boxes, right, which could send a funeral home for burial. So my idea is, next time somebody dies, I get in a box instead. Hill, coffins are airtight. You die of asphyxiation. Thank you. Not if I drill some subtle little holes in the right places. Yeah, but the casket would be sealed. You'd be trapped inside. Not if I get a couple of friends of mine to come to the funeral home and break me out. Yeah, but what you gonna do with the real motherfuckers that die? Uh-huh. How hard is it to hide a couple of bodies up in Oz, son? Temporarily, at least. It's a good, good plan. plan. Mm. Shit might work. That's what I'm saying. No, no, no. That's better than having a motherfucker mail you out. No, mail... Yo, Shut I was bullshit. No, no. I know he's... T- but I was bullshit. You thought I wanted to... Act 2 then, and we get another of Augustus' narration in Dents about how when an inmate is released, they think they're free, but that the other side isn't all that it's cracked up to be. And it all plays out to Robert Sipple, who is trapped inside the glass pod. The episode has a number of cast members in this situation throughout the episode, and they tie in really well to the escape theme. 
This series we've also seen less of Augustus rotating around in the box like we did in series 1, which has allowed each of the different directors to try different things each time, and it also differentiates this series from the last. There's some bizarre archive footage used of some lightning before we see Sipple arrive at Oz for a meeting with Sister Pete. Officer Breesy is managing the front desk and rings up to Sister Pete, telling her that Sipple has arrived, and then asks if Sipple has met any cute boys on the outside, specifically if any of them were called Dick, and then chuckles away to himself. They are very cheap jokes, but you'd be hard-pressed to feel any sort of sympathy for Sipple, the convicted sex offender. Sipple just ignores the jokes and meets up with Pete, who notices that Sipple is looking exhausted. Sipple explains that it's been a difficult transition to outside life, detailing an embarrassing situation at the courthouse when he was registering as a sex offender, the difficulty of finding employment, and also about how he's been sleeping rough on the subway. It's quite a rough tale that he tells, and despite what happens to him in this episode, which we'll get to in a few moments, it's hard to feel sorry for the guy considering his crime. Granted, he has served his sentence, which goes back to what Kashin was talking about with Kenny and Augustus in the previous episode, but the nature of his crime is unforgivable. This isn't grand theft or money laundering that we're talking about. Sipple was a sexual predator, and you'll struggle to garner sympathy for a character like that, no matter how well you write the show. Pete says that she'll help in any way that she can, and Sipple asks to speak to Leo about allowing him to sleep in Oz until he finds the landlord. No surprise to see that Leo seems reluctant to the idea, but he does come round to it saying that Sipple will have to stay in Genpop, and that he will be at risk. Pete saying that he is aware of that, but he is willing to stay. Quite why they couldn't put Sipple in one of the cells on death row, or in witness protection, doesn't get touched upon, but again, that is likely something to help move the narrative along for an upcoming scene. Leo says that Sipple won't find a landlord unless he finds a job, and Pete says that she is looking into that as well before Ray offers to take Sipple on as assistant using his discretionary fund from the diocese, and that maybe this is a good time to use his discretion. Discretionary funds are still used in church dioceses, and are usually kept within the region of around $10,000. However, that money can't be used willy-nilly. Use of the fund must be signed off by a bishop, so Ray will have had to get permission before Sipple starts work. So we cut to Sipple and Ray heading into Ray's office, and I've never noticed before that Ray has a Books of the Bible poster on the back of his door. Surely that is something he should really know by heart. Sipple tells him that he appreciates being given the job, and Ray says that he needed the help anyway, and that he isn't very organised, and apologises for the mess. Sipple says that Ray is still uncomfortable around him, and in all honesty, mate, I'd probably be uncomfortable around you and I've never been molested, unlike how it is heavily implied that Ray may have been. The phone rings and both men reach to answer it, but Sipple gets there just before Ray does, and they have to go and give the anointing to a patient that is dying in the hospital. The anointing is a practice originally performed by shepherds. Lice and other insects would get into the wool of sheep and eventually work their way up to the ears of the sheep and burrow in through the ear canal, killing the animal. Shepherds would cover the sheep's head in oil, making the wool slippery, and thus preventing insects from being able to get to the animal's ears. In a religious context, anointing people signified the blessing of God, and was usually performed for a special purpose, for that person to be a prophet, a king, or a builder. Anointed also carries the meaning of chosen one, and according to the Bible, Jesus Christ was anointed by God with the Holy Spirit to spread the good news and three those who have been held captive by sin. And you can find those in Luke 4.18-19 and Acts 10.38. After Christ left the earth, the Holy Spirit was his gift, and therefore all Christians are anointed, having been chosen for a specific purpose of furthering God's kingdom. Or as it was written in 2 Corinthians 1.21-22, 1 
Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And that is probably as positive as I'm ever going to sound talking about anything to do with the Bible or religion. Ray grabs his anointing toolbox, but Sipple takes it from him and says, if I'm really here to help you, then let me help. And we then get a quick scene of both performing the anointing. While you can see that it's going to take time for Ray to be at ease with Sipple around, it's a great gesture that he has done here, considering that last episode he didn't seem willing to help Sipple at all, and flat out said that he was disgusted by him. While this isn't him forgiving Sipple per se, it's almost like Ray is mirroring Pete, who while also uneasy with Sipple at times, is professional enough to see a man in need of help. And Ray is trying to follow her example, he obviously has a tremendous amount of respect for Pete and sees her as a mentor. Ray meets up with Francis Hansel, who is Sipple's victim, and he's played by Rod Brogan. They talk about the recent legislation being passed and Sipple being released, purely as a reminder to us about what has happened so far with this story, and it seemed very clunky in how it was written, it was really weird. So Hansel has come to have a meeting with Sipple, Ray saying that Sipple feels that he owes Hansel an explanation, and Hansel mentions about having never been inside a prison before. Ray reassures him that it'll be fine because a guard will be present at all times, and Hansel makes an awkward joke about whether or not the guard is there to protect him or Sipple. Ray doesn't look impressed, but Hansel says that he has no intention of harming Sipple, but that he doesn't really know what his intentions are and that he hasn't seen him since that day. He finishes by saying that ten years is a long time to carry that shit inside, and apologises for saying shit in front of a priest, but Ray tells him that sometimes shit is the only word that fits. Sipple is setting up the cafeteria chapel space as Ray and Hansel come over, and he and Hansel share a long look, and it's at this point I had to look up how old Rod Brogan was, as he looks far too old to be playing someone who had been molested ten years previous. He was 25 years old at the time of this airing, but he looks much older than that. We don't get to see their conversation, instead we go back to Genpop, where Schillinger has something to say to Sipple. Yes? How do you live with yourself? How do you? Whatever I've done, I've done for righteous reasons. Any laws I've broken don't deserve to be laws. But you... You, you... Fucking baby raper! You should be dead. Back in your cage, Schillinger. Don't make me use this. If you want me to enjoy myself, then would you? So Diane coming to Sipple's aid, but when he thanks her for stepping in, she says that she didn't do it for him and that for once she agrees with that Nazi fuck. We also hear someone off camera shout, Way to go, Vern! Diane also joins the list of people who can't pronounce Schillinger, and I also love the look that Schillinger gave Sipple after he answered back with how do you. It was a proper, the fuck did you just say? Cuts to the mailroom where Metzger approaches Schillinger and asks him what do you need. Unlike earlier, there's no look at my Nazi tattoo from Schillinger as it's been established already that Metzger is in cahoots with the Aryans from when he visited Richie Hanlon in the hull and will have already met Schillinger, but he won't have met Mac before being transferred to M-City. Schillinger says that he needs some rec time with Sipple, and we then cut to the gym where Sipple has been wrestled to the ground with arms wide open and his shoes removed. Schillinger waves a nail in his face, that is to say, hey, look at this, and it's fucking enormous. There's a quick shot of Metzger standing guard outside the gym, telling someone to keep walking, before we go back inside and see Sipple screaming his lungs out as he is crucified to the floor. And I mean properly crucified. Hands, feet, and the position of those, exactly as it's been depicted throughout history. And I've got to admit, I thought this scene was fucking badass. 
I'm not somebody that gets offended very easily, and not a very religious person in the slightest, as you probably guessed earlier. But I can imagine that this would have been considered hugely controversial at the time. And as I have mentioned before, had this been on network TV, there is no way this would have been shown in this form. And as I talked about earlier, I don't feel sorry for Sipple in the slightest, because at the end of the day, he is a convicted paedophile. And I'm sorry, but I don't see how we're supposed to feel sympathy for him. And that doesn't just go for us. If this had appeared on any other show, why would you try and garner sympathy for a child molester? I'm not saying that getting crucified to the floor was what he deserved, but I don't feel bad for not feeling sorry for him either. This is also the last that we see of Sipple on the show. I'm not including him in the death toll for the series because I think it might get referenced that he goes to the hospital as a result of this. We, however, go off to death row where Shirley is being examined by Gloria. She tells Gloria not to be nervous, which Gloria claims that she isn't, but Shirley says that she can understand and even has a pop at Gloria's bedside manner saying that she doesn't touch many women and that Gloria is twisting and turning her like she's a man. Safe to assume that working in a prison where Shirley is the female population, that yes, Gloria does tend to treat men more often than she does women. Gloria says that she is treating her just like any other patient, and Shirley then has a crack at how doctors are not meant to show any emotions. But Gloria says that doctors are compassionate, which Shirley calls a marvellous thing which allows you to be human and still be above the rest. Much like when Shirley had her encounter with Diane, she doesn't seem to endear herself to the women of Oz. Gloria says that Shirley is fine, to which Shirley asks if she's well enough to die. Gloria says that if she appears nervous, it's because she doesn't understand how a woman, particularly a mother, can do what Shirley did to her own flesh and blood, before calling for a guard to let her out of Shirley's cell. Shirley once again claims that what happened was an accident, but Gloria says that the next time she sees her, she'll be standing over her about to poke her with a lethal injection. I quite like Gloria in this scene, sometimes she struggles to show much emotion, but she's starting to come out of her shell more and more. Timmy Kirk has been lurking around mopping while this examination has been going on, and he comes over to the bars and leaves a lipstick with Shirley, who tells him thank you darling, as he walks away like he's hiding an erection. Shirley goes over to her mirror and applies some of the lipstick, calling back to what Augustus and Poet were discussing earlier about looking good for when you're buried, as we close out Act 2. The next time I see you, Shirley, I'll be standing over Gurney about to poke you with a lethal injection. Act 3 gets underway as we have Augustus narrating over Miguel trapped in the box this time, asking what the opposite of escaping is as we cut to M-City where El Cid is demanding more Quaaludes from the hospital to sell. Quaalude is part of the brand name for the drug Mephaquelone, which was sold as a sedative, but it does also have hypnotic qualities too. Developed in the 1950s but not patented until 1962, the drug reached its popularity in the 1970s when it was used to treat insomnia and was also used as a muscle relaxant, but it also gained notoriety as a recreational drug in nightclubs. In the US it was known as lewds or sopers, while in the UK it went by the name of mandrakes or mandies. There's also a quick shot of Ryan trying to wake up Beecher who was passed out on one of the game tables. I mean, I shouldn't laugh because Beecher is really struggling and in a dark place, but just that visual of Ryan giving him a little smack on the head to try and wake him up just got to me. Officer Rivera comes over to the Latinos and tells El Cid to get his feet off the table, but El Cid is just going to sit there and Rivera gets in his face before Metzger comes over asking what the problem is. 
Rivera tells him that El Cid has got an attitude, and Metzger, in the most put-upon showing of niceness, asks El Cid to take his feet down. Raul, I'm going to ask you nicely once. Will you please take your feet off the table? Will you do that for me, huh? El Cid takes one last look at Rivera before removing his feet from the table, before Metzger has to practically drag Rivera away from the scene. Once they're gone, El Cid starts to give Miguel shit about how Rivera still has his eyes. And Chico is getting in on the act too, as he seems to be El Cid's boy now. Miguel says that he's waiting for the right moment as Chico starts to make chicken noises. But Miguel tells him to shut up, otherwise he'll take his eyes instead. El Cid tells them to pack it in and then tells Miguel that he needs to take Rivera's eyes today. And he even calls him Michael again, which while not what you would call offensive, just shows how little respect he has for Miguel. Cut to the staff room where Leo is trying to get someone to go to the Knights game with him. McManus asks who they're playing, and Leo says that it's against Chicago, and asks if McManus wants to go. McManus says he can't because he has a date. So why the fuck did you ask who was playing if you had no intention of going? Unless you just wanted to humble brag about your date that may or may not exist. Leo asks Ray if he wants to go, but Ray says that he's going to visit Sipple at Benchley Memorial, so yes, Sipple is indeed still alive. You never think of Leo and Ray doing anything together. Like with others, they always seem to be all business when at work, but something tells me that Leo and Ray would actually get along with each other socially. McManus jokes about how Sipple now at least has a place to sleep, which, I'm sorry, that was fucking funny. Sister Pete doesn't find it amusing though, and asks if Leo has any idea who may have crucified Sipple, and I found it interesting that she actually referred to it as a crucifixion, and not just Sipple being attacked. Leo says that he hasn't got anything to go on, and McManus mentions that he thinks the CO was involved, when we suddenly hear an ah from outside the room. McManus goes to the door and opens it to find Rivera on the other side with his hands over his eyes, and blood is streaming all over them, and he's just screaming, my eyes, my eyes! Leo and McManus lay him down on the floor, and he does remove his hands, and we see the full extent of what has happened, as McManus recoils in horror, and Leo shouts for help. The sort of dispatchers Metzger calls for a lockdown, and Rivera is taken to the hospital, where Gloria starts to wrap his face in bandages, but he is losing a lot of blood. Gloria tries to shine a light in his eyes. Why? Why, Gloria? They're clearly gone. What are you expecting to see that you can't see with your own eyes? McManus and Leo are in M-City, and McManus says he's not in M-City, as Leo tells the sort to search the whole prison, which means that Gen Pop is getting locked down too. This had a similar feel to when the riot broke out in the last series finale, as you get that pounding music playing underneath, and the intensity is really being cranked up. And it's the first time in a while that we've had this feel on the show. There's been a lot of growing going on in this second series, with all the new characters that have come in, but a lot of it has played out to relative calm, whereas in this episode we've had someone get crucified to the floor, and now someone's had their eyes taken out. It just shows how quickly everything can change. Leo heads to the hospital to see how Rivera is doing. Gloria says that he's sedated, but his eyes are gone, and needs a transfusion due to the blood loss. Leo tells her to do it, but Rivera is AB negative, but the blood bank is out of stock of that. Leo tells her to find someone in Oz with the same blood type, which Gloria says they are doing, but it's going to take some time. And that is the last we'll see of Officer Rivera for a little while, and it's certainly the last time he'll see any of us. Ray heads into his office, but he is quickly apprehended by Miguel, who threatens him with the scalpel that he's used to cut out Rivera's eyes. And you see that his hands are still covered in Rivera's blood. He's obviously gone straight into hiding after the attack. McManus joins Leo and Gloria, saying that the sort are searching Oz cell by cell, but there is no sign of Miguel. 
Gloria then starts to give out that she's been going through the inmate's blood records to try and find an AB negative match, and she's found someone with it. McManus asks who it is, and she says that it's Ryan O'Reilly, as we cut to McManus asking Ryan for help. Fuck you. A man's life is in danger. A hack's life. Fuck you. God damn it, O'Reilly. I'm sick of your fucking bullshit. Now you need to do this now. There's only one or two ways you're going to get my blood out of me. You either tie me down and you take it. Or, or you let my brother Cyril out of the hole and you put him in Hem City with me. To play amateur director for a second, I think that reveal of Ryan being the one with the right blood type would have worked so much better if they had just cut straight to him after McManus asks who is it, rather than have Gloria say that it's Ryan. I mean, it is blindingly obvious who Gloria is referring to, but I just think that would have worked that little bit better. The best thing to come out of it though was that we got another notch on the Terry Kinney bullshit meter. I'm sick of your fucking bullshit! We go back to Ray's office where he's trying to get through to Miguel, saying that he needs to think things through and that there is no way out. He also becomes another member of the SORT Team Pronunciation Club, saying that they're going to find them eventually and that Miguel will be outnumbered. Miguel is holding back tears, saying that the SORT are going to beat the shit out of him, but Ray says that he won't let them. Miguel calls that bullshit, asking what Ray's going to do. Back in the hospital, Ryan is brought down to do the blood transfusion, which Gloria is carrying out, and there's an understandable atmosphere between them. Again, for the purposes of drama, you have to overlook why Gloria is the one carrying out this transfusion on the man who killed her husband rather than someone else. Surely there is more than one person who can carry out a blood transfusion. What would they do if someone needed one and Gloria wasn't there that day? That guard with a moustache goes down to the hall with some clothes for Cyril, who is stood in the middle of the room cupping his balls. Something tells me that Cyril has been stood there the entire time he's been down in the hall, although it's not clear how long that's been, but with everything that has happened since he was taken there last episode, it must have been at least a few days. We go back to Ray's office where Miguel is telling Ray the story about his grandfather cutting out an inmate's tongue and ended up in solitary, and how he eventually went crazy because of Alzheimer's. And Miguel admits that he is afraid of suffering the same fate, and that he might not be able to handle it. He starts to cry and says that he has trouble with being in small spaces as it is, which I don't recall ever being a thing before, and says that they might as well beat him to death. Ray mentions that they've been through a lot together, and that Miguel needs to believe him when he says that there is no alternative. Miguel, however, says that there is, and mentions about how he now knows that when he cut his cheek, he was nuts, and that instead he should have cut his throat, and puts the blade to his neck, and asks Ray to say a prayer for him. Ray screams at him not to do it, but the sort break down the door, hitting Miguel in the back, which for a man holding a scalpel to his neck could have gone horribly wrong when you think about it. They drag Miguel away as Ray pleads with them not to hurt him, and we see Miguel escorted to his new cell in solitary confinement, and the sort are giving him a couple of hard shots along the way. There's a great shot of Miguel at the bars of his cell begging not to be left alone as the door is closed on him, and he then starts to drag his mattress off the bed and around his cell, all the while screaming, let me out, and the scene closes on a shot of the long, empty corridor as we hear the muffled screams of Miguel crying for help. You get a real feel for Miguel's isolation and solitary as a whole with that shot of the corridor. You just know that this scene has played out the exact same way many times over the years at Oz. The lockdown is ended and El Cid says that they must have found Miguel, and that they'll charge him with attempted murder and leave him to die in solitary. He then says that he feels sorry for him, and that maybe Miguel did have balls after all, as Cyril is brought into M-City, and he's looking around the place in childlike awe. 
Now, there are some that would say that the acting from Kirk Acevedo in these scenes may be a little bit hammy, incoherent, and a bit all over the place. But I thought he was fantastic, and if anything, him being a bit scatty added to the performance. Miguel is trapped in a corner. He either goes through with attacking Rivera and ends up going to solitary, which is ultimately what happens, or he defies his gang leader and faces the wrath of not just El Cid, but the other Latinos as well. That scene in Ray's office, it makes sense that it's a little disjointed because Miguel has done the deed, but now he's trying to figure out what his next move is, and he's having to do it on the fly. Part of me is hoping that it is to some degree improvised, and that Kirk was just told, here's your situation, this is where you want to get to, now go figure it out. I'd probably go so far as to say that this is one of my favourite scenes of the second series. Back in the hospital, Ryan asks Gloria if he can speak to her, but she doesn't want to hear anything that he has to say. McManus enters and tells Ryan that he has transferred Cyril to M-City, and we then get the backstory to how Cyril ended up with his mental condition. Ryan explains that they were at a funeral and that he hooked up with some girl that he used to date, and we cut to a flashback of them getting it on in the back room of this funeral home, and Dean Winters is sporting either the worst haircut in the world or it is one hell of a wig. Turns out that this girl was seeing someone else that was at this funeral, and we see Cyril out front keeping an eye on things. He's wearing a long leather trench coat, which I thought, with this being the late 90s, would have been an influence from the first film in the Matrix trilogy, but that wasn't released until the following March in the US. The boyfriend of this girl walks in on her and Ryan, and there's a little scuffle before Ryan tries to make an exit with Cyril. But in order to do that, they're going to have to get through the funeral home, so they end up fighting with a bunch of other guys on the way out. As Cyril helps Ryan with one of his attackers, another man grabs a hat stand and hits Cyril across the back of the head, which leaves him unconscious on the floor. Cyril got brain damaged, defending me. When the doctors told me that Cyril would never be the same again, that he'd have the mind of a five-year-old, fuck, it crushed me. So I got wasted. I lost control. Everything I've done since I've gotten here was to protect my ass so that I can make parole. But what I feel for Gloria, it blinded me. So I lost control again. And now Cyril's in Oz. He's going to be here for the next 60 years. And he got raped by Schillinger. And he's afraid. So. I gotta stay here with Cyril. I gotta protect my brother. And for once in my fucking life, I'm gonna be his big brother. You had Cyril kill Gloria's husband. Yes. You'll be brought up on charges. That's what I deserve. So Ryan confesses that he had Cyril murder Preston Nathan, which if the additional charge Schillinger received is anything to go by, should land him an extra ten years onto his sentence. As McManus leaves, we see that Gloria has heard Ryan's confession. However, what I liked most about this was how they linked Ryan's original crime flashback to this confession. Rather than it just being Ryan going on a bit of a bender for no apparent reason, it added some context to it with him dealing with what happened to Cyril because of his own actions. 
Seeing these scenes back, I got the feeling like there was a bit of a Boondock Saints vibe from the O'Reilly brothers, but again, that was a film released after this episode aired. In fact, that was over a year until that film was released. Ryan returns to M-City and heads up to his pod, where Cyril is sat playing with his bouncy ball. Kenny and another of the black inmates are hanging around outside, but Ryan tells them to fuck off before heading into the pod to give Cyril a big hug. We cut back to the hospital where Gloria is going over some paperwork, as McManus comes over and asks how she's doing. She seems a little bit off and explains that she started to box up Preston's things, and mentions about how Preston had seven mismatched cufflinks, and asks who keeps one cufflink. That's the difference between men and women right there, because if I were to throw away a cufflink, what do I do if I then find the other one? I've then got one cufflink again, which is as useless as the one you made me throw away. Don't be so wasteful, Gloria. Also, what if you've only got one hand or one arm? Rather than having one pair of cufflinks, you've got two individual ones. McManus asks her if she wants to get anything to eat, but Gloria says no. McManus, the serial data, insists that it would be just as friends, but Gloria rejects him again. As McManus gets up to leave, he says that he has to ask Gloria something about Ryan as we close out Act 3. Okay, uh, I gotta ask you something. About O'Reilly. Do you think he really loves you? Yeah. No one will ever love me as much as Ryan O'Reilly. And I have to live with that fact every day for the rest of my life. Act 4 then kicks off with Augustus narrating about how some use alcohol, heroin, or other chemicals as a means of escape, but sometimes succumb to being a prisoner of addiction. And it's Beecher in the box this time with his bottle of booze, and we hear a screech of tyres, but no appearance from Kathy Rockwell this time, and we also see a flashback of the kiss between him and Keller, as well as Keller being released from the hull. He passes a cell where we hear a scream coming from, meaning that the hull is located at the end of Solitary, but that will have been Miguel in there. I'm still getting used to the geography of Oz, as I don't think it's been made clear before that that is where the hole actually is. Beecher is laying in bed, but soon perks up once he sees Keller return to M-City. He jumps out of bed saying, at last, and then tries to kiss Keller. Keller doesn't look up for it though, and says that Beecher is drunk. As Beecher continues to try and kiss him, and even says to him, let's fuck. As if they're going to do it in the middle of the day with the lights on and everybody able to see. Keller says that he doesn't want to fuck Beecher, or even be in the same room as him, and he leaves the pod. Beecher goes after him, but Keller tells him not to touch him, and they continue to argue as they walk through M-City. Beecher asks if Keller is mad at him, as Keller tries to tell him to forget about it, but Beecher says that he's sorry and didn't mean to. Keller takes him aside and says that he's had a lot of time to think, and that he's decided that he and Beecher are through. I mean, you were never really on in the first place, and Beecher is in proper love-struck teenager mode, asking what it is that he did to annoy Keller. As Keller tries to walk away, he says that if it's the drinking, then he can stop, and he grabs Keller's arm. But Keller pushes Beecher to the ground, and it's one hell of a shove too, because Beecher actually slides along the floor a little. Keller heads in to get a shower as Beecher heads back to the pod, but he has to endure some taunting from the other inmates, apart from Cyril, who seems completely oblivious to what's going on. We get a little montage of the rest of the day in which we see Keller playing chess with someone as Beecher looks on like a strung out zombie, while he later buys another bottle of booze from Chico before finishing the day at Lights Out, with Keller getting into bed and giving Beecher a look of disdain. And you can kind of see why Keller would think that. Beecher has become a shadow of himself since Keller went to the hole, not only with the drinking, 
but he's got his beard stubble back and just the general way that he is acting, it's kind of pathetic how quickly he fell for Keller. It does, however, put Keller over quite strongly, as he does have a certain charisma, and that's why Schillinger brought him in in the first place. Speaking of Schillinger, he meets up with Keller in the library for another update. So? You've been out of the hole two days, I haven't spoken more than ten words to beat you. Yeah, I've seen him. He's a fucking mess. He is on the ledge. I said it's about time we pushed him off. Beecher is waiting at the gym gates as Metzger comes over to let him in, but not before telling him that he looks like warmed over shit and that maybe a workout will do him some good. They head into the gym where Keller and Schilling are already inside doing some wrestling. Keller says hey Beach as Schillinger gives him a cooey. Beecher charges at Keller in a rage, but he is completely outmatched with Schillinger and Metzger there. He struggled when wrestling Keller on his own, he didn't stand a chance in this scenario. Keller says that he and Schillinger have known each other for a long time, going as far back as a stretch they did together up at Lardner. Keller says that he was 17 at the time, and Schillinger saved him from a situation that mirrors what Beecher went through when he first arrived at Oz, and that he has owed Schillinger ever since. He then tells Beecher that he doesn't love him, and never has. Keller tells Metzger to let Beecher go so that they can wrestle, saying that this time it's for real. Beecher shoots in and takes Keller down, but Keller shows that he has some serious MMA skills quickly transitioning to an armbar, and he snaps Beecher's arm like it was nothing. Beecher is running on pure emotion and tries to continue the fight, but Keller grabs his other arm and snaps that one too. Metzger looks on laughing as Schillinger steps in saying that it's his turn, and as Keller stands on Beecher's ankle holding it in place, Schillinger shouts, Zeke Heil baby, Zeke fucking Heil, just like when Beecher shits on him and stomps on Beecher's knee. Cut back to M-City where the inmates are talking about how they broke both of Beecher's arms and legs. Rebido says it was because he was in love with Keller, as Kenny is scoping out Beecher's pod, saying that he wants to move in as it has a better view. McManus storms over to Metzger asking how this happened, and Metzger gives him the most unconvincing and somewhat robotic, I don't know, but I'll find out. It's another time where he might as well have winked at the camera. There's a shot of Beecher laying in his hospital bed with his limbs in casts as Keller is in his pod looking at Beecher's empty bunk and he almost looks like he's regretting what happened. Whether he truly feels that way remains to be seen, but this storyline, much like the Miguel storyline, has had the slow build over the course of the second series, and both have culminated at the right time. McManus meets up with Leo in the corridor and asks what he knows about Metzger, but Leo says all that he knows is what's in Metzger's file. He asks why McManus is asking questions, McManus just saying that he has a bad feeling about Metzger. And so he should do, as the surname Metzger doesn't have a rich history. With Carl Metzger here having a link to the Aryan Brotherhood, it's likely that he could have been named after Tom Metzger, the American white supremacist and former leader of the Ku Klux Klan, who in 1983 founded the White American Resistance, now known as the White Aryan Resistance. Much like with neo-Nazi symbols, there's only so much time I'm willing to dedicate to researching him, but just head over to his Wikipedia page to see how much of a gobshite he is. We get more narration from Augustus as we transition into Adebisi's story, which starts with him asleep in his pod, as Kenny bursts in saying, Nappa's got hold of our tits. When I was re-watching this, I took a swig of my drink at that point and ended up spitting it out as I didn't remember that line. It's fucking hilarious. Adebisi wakes up as Kenny says that he doesn't know how, but Nappa has got hold of the drugs package. Pierce says that they need to kill Nappa, which Adebisi says they will, 
but Kenny is frustrated and asks when and says that all Adebisi has done for the last couple of days is lay in bed and they've had to cover him in the kitchen and that he's getting tired of Adebisi's shit. Adebisi jumps down from his bunk and even I was thinking, fucking hell Kenny, what are you thinking? As Adebisi asks if Kenny is giving him orders. Kenny doesn't respond but you can see that he has been put in his place and that Adebisi is still a commanding presence when he wants to be. Adebisi heads off to the library where he sees the elderly African inmate from the last episode who is sat at a table with some shells. He says that he knows why Adebisi has come and Adebisi calls him a fetisher who can see the future in the shells. A fetish, derived from the Latin factitious, is an object believed to have supernatural powers and tend to be man-made, and was a concept developed by the Portuguese. The concept was popularised in Europe in the 1750s when Charles de Brosa used the term when comparing West African religion to the magical aspects found in the religion of ancient Egypt. The concept was expanded on by August Comte in his theory on the evolution of religion. It wasn't until 1927 when Sigmund Freud published his essay on fetishism that the term became synonymous in a sexual context. Freud wrote, The fetish is a substitute for the penis, for a particular and quite special penis that had been extremely important in early childhood, but had later been lost. It remains a token of triumph over the threat of castration and a protection against it. Often associated with the voodoo practice, commonly known as voodoo, Fetishes often appear as sculptures known as minkisi and sometimes referred to as idols, as they tend to depict the human form. Not exclusive to African religion, fetishes are commonly used in Native American practices as well. The inmate tells Adebisi that the shells have already told him that they will meet, and he pushes the cells towards Adebisi as he takes a seat. Adebisi asks, if you're so smart, what are you doing in prison? And we get the inmate's flashback, which also gives us his name. Convicted August 1st, 98. Criminally negligent homicide. Sentence, 20 years. Up for parole in 8. So Kip Kemijara is in Oz for criminally negligent homicide, meaning that the boy that we see him performing this ritual on must have died from whatever Jara was trying to cure him of. While he most likely wouldn't have faced any charges in his native Africa due to this being more in tune with that culture, by performing such a thing in the US is against the law, religious practice or not. So Kip Kami Jara is played by Zakes Murkay. Born August 5th in Johannesburg in the Union of South Africa, known simply today as South Africa, Murkay was jailed a number of times as a young man during the days of apartheid, a corrosive time of racial separation. Unable to study acting in his homeland and after a stint of playing the saxophone in the Huddleston Jazz Band, Murkay eventually moved to England in 1961 to study at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. During this time, Murkay studied at the same time as emerging playwright Athol Fugard, and the two men founded the theatre group The Rehearsal Room in the 50s, and also worked together on the play The Blood Knot, which held its premiere performance in Johannesburg in 1961. Murkay moved to the US in 1969 and formed the Black Actors Theatre with Danny Glover in 1980, but continued to work with Fugard in the plays Bosman and Lena, 
A Lesson from Allers, and in 1982's Mr. Harold and the Boys, for which Murkay won the Tony Award for Best Performance by a Featured Actor in a Play, playing the role of Sam, a role that he would also portray in the play's 1985 TV adaptation. Murkay was nominated for a second Tony Award in 1993 for his role in Tug Yagro's play The Song of Jacob Zulu. On film, Murkay's first credited role came in 1957 in the adventure comedy Donker Africa, as well as in 1967's The Comedians, which starred Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. Splitting his time between the UK and the US, Murkay landed a role in two episodes of Starsky and Hutch in 1976, as well as an appearance in Knight Rider in 1983. Due to his upbringing, Murkay starred in a number of anti-apartheid films, including Cry Freedom from 1987 and 1989's A Dry White Season as well as finding a niche in horror films such as The Serpent and the Rainbow in 1988, Dust Devil from 1993, and 1995's Vampire in Brooklyn. 1995 also saw Murkay appear in Outbreak, starring Dustin Hoffman and the Kevin Costner-led Waterworld, the most expensive movie ever made at the time. In 1996, Murkay made an appearance in the fourth season of The X-Files, and in 1998 appeared in the movie Krippendorf's Tribe, but for the final time this series, it's time to play Homicide on Homicide. So a nice and simple one to finish off the series with, did Zex Murkay appear on Homicide Life on the Street before appearing here on Oz? Yes or no? And I will give you the answer at the end of the show. Jara tells Adebisi that he believes he was sent to Oz for him, and to warn him that if he doesn't change his ways with the drugs and the violence, then Adebisi will die. But Adebisi tells him that's everyone's future, which is a good point in all fairness. Jara asks how long has Adebisi been in America, and Adebisi says that he's been there for 15 years, meaning that he came over in 1983. And Jara says that because of that, he has lost the meaning of home, and that he doesn't know who he is anymore, and that he disgraces their people. Strong words from Jara, and Nadabizi calls him out on it, saying the same people that have let Oyinbo come in and use them. Oyinbo is a word used in the Yoruba to refer to white people, particularly those of European descent. Jara tells Adabizi despite that, their souls return to their birthplace, and that Adabizi has abandoned his. But if he wants peace, then he must embrace his roots, and he gives Adabizi some traditional headwear. Adabizi takes a long look at it before removing his own hat and replacing it with a new one. There's some really nice traditional sounding African music playing when he does this. It has a real tribal feel to it. Adebisi meets with Sister Pete for a follow-up meeting. She says that his urine test is coming negative and she seems genuinely happy at that. She asks how he's doing physically with the detox and Adebisi claims that he has the heart of a lion and smacks his chest. And you hear Sister Pete do a little woo, And she says that he actually looks happy for once. Adebisi says that he was avoiding himself with the drugs but for the first time since coming to Oz he has found family. He says it first in Nigerian, which didn't come up on the DVD subtitles, and I'm not going to try and pronounce it myself. Cut to M-City, where Ryan is back to his shit-stirring ways, saying that Napper is claiming to be in charge because he has the drugs and has Adebisi by the balls. And he says that he doesn't know how Kenny can trust Adebisi now and to just take a look at him as they pass Adebisi, who is looking up to the heavens saying that he remembers the peace and speaking Nigerian. Kenny motions for he and Pierce to go elsewhere as Cyril says to Ryan that what he said was bad. And we've seen this from Cyril a couple of times that he isn't... how do I word this? He isn't completely gone mentally, he does still have some grasp of right and wrong. 
Ryan tells him that in Oz, bad is good, as we then cut to Ryan having a shave later on, and this time he's staring things up with Napper and Chucky, saying that Adebisi is likely the crack, and to give it a couple of days before approaching them. Napper asks Ryan to find out what else is going on with Adebisi's mind besides the detox, and Ryan says that Adebisi and Jara have got some strange shit going on. Chucky passes off some drugs into Ryan's wash bag as payment for his troubles, and Napper asks if Ryan is a drug user. Ryan tells him that he isn't anymore and that it's purely for profit, as Napper says that it was a pleasure doing business together, Ryan telling him likewise. Napper tells Chucky that he wants Jara dead as they leave the washroom as we cut to the gym where Kenny is shooting some hoops with Pierce, as Napper approaches with a proposition. Yo, yo, anybody smell garlic? Hey, fuck. Easy, everybody, we didn't come here to fight. Your man, out of BC, he's lost his edge. Nah, he's just a little sick, that's all. He'll be all right. Really? I got control of all the tits and eyes, you guys got shit. Now, rather than us taking shots at each other, I say we call the truce and work together. We have our own operation, we don't need you. Think about that for a moment. Who's gonna get every pair of tits that comes in this place, huh? Make the smart decision here. We ain't gonna be your bitches. Hey, we work together. We share. We in business. Now, as a sign of good faith, there's a little job I need done. So Napa looking to eliminate the threats to his empire, but also looking to strike partnerships that will aid him in the long run. It also serves to show that Kenny is still a little naive and easily led, as he doesn't take much time to contemplate Napa's offer. He just sees the opportunity to seize leadership of the gang from Adebisi, and doesn't seem to consider the long-term consequences. We cut to the kitchen where Jaro has started working now, and Kenny is asking why Adebisi is allowing that, because Jaro is slowing everyone down. Adebisi just tells Kenny to shut up, and goes to leave to grab some more corn from the pantry. With Adebisi out of the way, Kenny sees the opportunity to take Jaro out, and he grabs the knife that Adebisi was using and stabs Jaro in the back, and you can hear him twisting it as well, which is going to do more damage. He passes the knife to Pierce, who drops it into a bowl of soapy water, and they both make a quick exit from the scene as Adebisi comes back and finds Jara on the floor in pain. He calls for help as Kenny and Pierce look on, but Jara says that he is going home as Adebisi asks him not to leave. Jara passes away and Adebisi places his head on his chest and then starts to hear African drums. He asks Jara's corpse if he can hear the drums as he looks up to the heavens, and then strips down to his boxer shorts and performs some sort of traditional dance. Napper and the Italians have made their way into the kitchen as Adebisi continues to dance, but guards rush in. Adebisi manages to fend off a couple of them, but is eventually taken away by three of them for some questioning. Cut to McManus' office, where he and Leo are asking Kenny about what happened. Kenny is playing dumb, saying that he doesn't know what happened, and that Adebisi has been going through detox and acting crazy, and finishes by saying, and then he goes and stabs that sweet old man. Also here we see Kenny has a tattoo of a spider on his neck, which I've never noticed before. Leo and McManus look at each other as we get a final shot of Kenny doing some shifty eyes to end the scene. That last shot of Kenny wasn't really needed, I don't think. The look between McManus and Leo had already planted the seed of doubt as to whether or not they're buying Kenny's story. 
Sometimes the show is a little guilty of having just that one last thing which then lessens the impact of something else. Like I mentioned earlier about the reveal of Ryan having the blood type that was needed. It's a minor criticism, I know, but they just lose that little bit of effectiveness sometimes. Adebisi is taken down to the psychiatric ward, which Sister Pete mentioned last week, and she's there accompanying the guards. The psych ward has all the cliches that they usually do when shown on TV. You can hear people screaming, they pass a guy who's reaching out through the bars, it ticks all the boxes. Adebisi is placed in his cell and we see Shibeta in the cell next to his. That's some poor placement right there, putting the rapist so close to his victim. Shibeta looks a right mess as well, which is understandable. Sister Pete looks disappointed as she looks at Adebisi. You can tell that she felt like he was really making some progress as Adebisi looks at his new hat before staring off into the distance, hearing the drums again as we close out Act 4. You were there. How can you not know what happened? I don't know what happened. Adebisi's been going through detox and acting all crazy lately. And then he goes and stabs that sweet old man. I don't know. So you know that this is a whopper of an episode as we head into the seldom seen Act 5, with Augustus narrating about the legal ways to escape Oz, and mentions appeals and court hearings, which of course he knows plenty about, before also mentioning clemency as Saeed takes a leap out of the box, and we then cut to him taking a piss in his pod. Arif enters and tells Saeed that the phone is ready for him, and Saeed grabs a copy of his riot book and heads downstairs, and we hear him mention about how his radio show has thousands of listeners, and if we don't ask, we don't know. So Saeed is obviously guesting on some sort of radio show, meaning that the media blackout must have been lifted on all of the inmates. I know we had Jiggy Walker talking to the press previously, but that was an event set up by Devlin. So Leo must have lifted the ban at some other time, unless, of course, Saeed is doing this on the sly, which is entirely possible. Cut to McManus Council of Inmates, where Kashin is suggesting about introducing a no-swearing rule. I say we instituted a no-swearing rule. Fuck you. Fuck my dick. Asswipe. Cocksucker, you stupid cunt. Puts. Yeah, fuck off, Kashin. That went down about as well as could be expected, as McManus adjourns the meeting. McManus asks Saeed to stay behind as he wants to talk about Poet, saying that he's tried to reach him several times, but Poet has closed himself off and asks if Saeed has talked to him at all. Saeed says what's the point as McManus mentions about starting over, but Saeed says that he's done everything he could to help Poet, referring to him as a boy, and so has McManus, but he is done with Poet and leaves the library. McManus chases after him, saying, Where's your every soul is redeemable, never give up attitude? And Saeed says that when he was arrested, he said to himself that it was Allah's will that he could go to Oz and help his brothers. And McManus concludes that Saeed feels like he hasn't helped and that sometimes he feels the same way. Saeed says that the difference between them is that McManus can go home at night and is even free to quit and go find another job but Saeed is going to be in Oz for another 17 years, and that he's been thinking about what he could have done with that time. McManus mentions about starting a family, which nearly moves Saeed to tears, 
but he says that Saeed still has time for that and that he won't be too old when he's released. Much like Ribado in the last episode, I'm going off how old Eamon Walker was at the time to determine Saeed's age. So at the time of airing, Saeed would have been 36 years old. 17 years on would have had him in 2015 and at the age of 53. Which some might see as too old to start a family, but then again, Mick Jagger's 900 years old and he's had his 8th child in 2016. Saeed worries that after two decades in Oz, what is he going to be able to offer a wife and child? And McManus mentions Saeed's faith and how it sustains him. Saeed says that his faith does sustain him most of the time before he leaves the scene. Great little scene here between Saeed and McManus, and you can see that they're slowly starting to warm to each other, and this is probably the longest that they've talked to each other without breaking into an argument. It also shows that even those considered to be strong-willed can be broken by their situation, as we see here with Saeed mentioning about his faith. Cut to M-City where Metzger makes an announcement about some of the inmates needing to report to Leo's office. He calls out the names of Saeed, Arif, and the other Muslims, who finally have names, those being Nassim Bismillah and Sanjay Afsana. And I liked how Metzger made a complete hash of pronouncing the names, and that he didn't give a shit about doing so. Saeed heads to Leo's office, where Ray and Sister Pete are also waiting for him. Sister Pete explains that every year around Christmas, Governor Devlin grants clemency to an inmate, whereas this year he's decided to do two additional releases. One for Passover for the Jewish faith, which tends to occur in either March or April, and another for Ramadan, which is celebrated at the start of the new moon, and as a result, dates vary in different countries. Clemency, much like a pardon in the case of a state crime, must be granted by the governor of the state, although in some cases an entity such as the parole board can act on the governor's behalf, while in the case of federal crimes, clemency must be granted by the President of the United States. In order to accept clemency, the beneficiary must accept the pardon and acknowledge that the crime took place, and even though released, the conviction remains on their criminal record. Since taking office in January 2017 and at the time of writing, President Trump has granted a total of 15 pardons, the five most recent of which occurred on July 29th, 2019. Between January 1977 and July 2015, a total of 280 cases of clemency were granted, the majority of which occurred in the state of Illinois when on July 11th, 2003, just two days before he was scheduled to leave office, Governor George Ryan commuted the sentences of 167 death row inmates to life sentences, as well as issuing four pardons due to his belief that the death penalty could not be administered fairly. Saeed says that he has heard about the clemencies as he's been working with Muslim leaders to get them enacted, and Ray explains that Devlin has asked them to go over the cases of the Muslim inmates and recommend a candidate, but Leo mentions that Devlin has specified that he wants Saeed to be put forward for consideration. Saeed looks around the room asking if this is some sort of trick and that there must be strings attached, but Ray shakes his head. Saeed asks what he has to give up in order to gain his freedom, but Pete tells him that he doesn't have to give up anything, as Leo asks the big question. If Devlin offers clemency, will Saeed accept it? Saeed takes a moment to consider before quietly answering that he will accept the offer if asked, as we cut to the cafeteria where the Muslims have gathered. Saeed tells the group that they must all be happy for whoever is chosen, and Arif, like a sulky teenager, says, Yeah, especially if it's you. Saeed turns to look at Arif, almost like he can't believe that Arif, who is basically his second in command, has answered him in such a way. Arif apologises and says that he has children on the outside, and although he knows they're being cared for, it's not the same and that they miss him and he misses them. Saeed tells him that he knows that, but Arif doesn't seem so sure and gets up to leave. So there is some dissension in the ranks of the Muslims, and we also see Arif arguing with other members of the group about how it's all about Saeed, but they're saying that it's Allah's will, and Saeed has to break up a fight between them. 
McManus comes over to find out about the commotion, Saeed telling him that madness is ensuing. McManus pulls him aside from the group and tells Saeed that he is the one that has been chosen for the clemency. Saeed takes a step back as he seems to be going through a gambit of emotions as McManus explains that with Ramadan starting this coming Thursday, Devlin is looking to hold a press conference. McManus says that he feels like he should be congratulating Saeed, but something is bothering him about the whole thing, and he leaves saying peace be unto you, which I thought was a nice touch. There's a moment as well where Saeed questions McManus about whether or not he'll miss him, but McManus firmly tells him no. I don't know, I felt like they were finally starting to build something lately. Not that McManus wants anybody to be in Oz in the first place, but Saeed could have proven to be a valuable ally if he hadn't been chosen. Devlin holds his press conference, which has also been broadcast on the MCT TV, and it's what in wrestling terms would be called a locker room sellout. Every inmate is watching this report. They're not playing games at the tables, they're not reading anything, they're completely focused on the TV. Devlin says that Ramadan is at the centre of Islamic worship and that he's pleased to be granting clemency on a prisoner. While he acknowledges that Saeed has been an outspoken critic and mentions their political differences, he does also say that Saeed has been an outstanding member of the prison population and mentions about Saeed's heart attack, working with inmates of every race and colour and being a mentor to young inmates. The question that's left hanging there as well is whether or not Devlin knows that Saeed was partly responsible for the riot starting. He signs the document granting Saeed his pardon, wishes him well in his new life, and then asks Saeed to approach the podium. They shake hands and Saeed, under his breath, says, finally we meet face to face, and is asked by a reporter how he feels. Mr. Saeed, how do you feel? How do I feel? I feel joyless. My brothers remain behind, imprisoned, suppressed. I don't just mean my Muslim brothers, I mean every single man that will sleep in here tonight. He was cut off from everything that he loves. Cut off from his own self. You know, as the word went around that the governor was going to give somebody clemency, I saw a rift develop. As each inmate wished himself to be the chosen one. The longing to be free became as palpable as the food that we eat. But it is a meal that I am being served right now. And I am Muslim. And Allah does not allow me to swallow certain things. Allah does not allow me to take scraps from the hands of a man such as this. A man who was corrupt and immoral. A man who denigrates the gift of clemency just as he violates the principles of justice. A man that gave the order to cause the death of eight people. And so, Governor Devlin, because even the cost of freedom can be too high, I refuse your pardon. Devlin tries to put a brave face on as he is bombarded with questions and Saeed is taken back to M-City. He's met with a hero's welcome from most of the inmates, and he and Arif embrace, while others chant his name as he makes his way back into M-City. 
Mamanis is looking down from the control panel, and he and Saeed lock eyes and share a smile with each other, as well as a nod of acknowledgement. I've mentioned before about McManus' god complex and how his office is above M-City and how he's often looking down on his creation, and he's in a similar spot here. Would that make him a liar in this situation? Metzger doesn't look as enthusiastic, as Augustus narrates about how there is no escape in truth, and the final shot shows him getting into an empty casket and closing the lid to close out the episode and the second series. Everybody wants to escape from Oz. Of course, the truth is, there is no escape. I mean, let's say you manage to sneak out. Then you gotta run, and keep running. A life of running away ain't no life at all. Better to stay put, face reality. Deal with what you got and make the best of it. Yeah. The measure of a man is not where he lives, but how. How he makes the best of it. Make the best of it. Later. So there we go, episode 8, Escape from Oz, and with it, series 2. I thought this was one of the strongest episodes of the series, the user ratings on IMDb also have it as the highest rated in this series, and as I mentioned earlier on, it felt like it had a lot more action happening. Storylines that have had the slow build throughout the series, such as Rebido and Boost Malice with their tunnel and El Cid tormenting Miguel, all felt like they were either culminating at the right time, or in some cases like with the Beecher Keller Schillinger storyline, were achieving their next pivotal moment to keep those storylines going and it leaves people in interesting places heading into Series 3. Adebisi being taken away to the psychiatric ward also opens up an opportunity for Kenny to seize power for himself, and Antonio Nappa has firmly established himself and the Italians as a threat in very short order. The Aryans are recovering strongly and have a firm ally on the staff side of things in Karl Metzger. Beecher has once again been put through the emotional ringer and continues to struggle with his various addictions and newfound sexuality and Ryan's interests are now heavily focused on looking out for his brother Cyril. We've also seen Saeed and McManus slowly develop a level of respect for each other over the course of this series. The only minor point from this episode was that I felt they could have introduced the storyline of Saeed being granted clemency a little earlier on in the series, and played up the dissension between him and Arif for a little while longer. That whole final act felt a little tacked on, as it only runs for around 8 or 9 minutes. There's a very real chance it could have been introduced late in the process at the request of HBO, to extend the episode out beyond its usual runtime for its series finale. As for the death toll, we saw three deaths in this episode, the most for a single episode outside of the collective naming of the inmates killed in the riot at the start of the series. First off, we saw Steve the Aryan and Mark Mack perish as they tried to escape through the tunnel. Leif Riddell, who played Mark Mack, continues to act mainly in supporting roles, and has credited appearances on Law & Order and Third Watch for NBC, The Americans and The Following on FX and Fox, as well as a guest spot on CBS police drama Blue Bloods. He's also had recurring roles in Guiding Light on CBS, as well as Soapnet's revival of All My Children, while in film he played the lead in the Alice Thompson-directed Pot Luck, as well as supporting roles in titles such as The Brave One, A Perfect Getaway, and Non-Stop. 
and also performed stunt work on both The Amazing Spider-Man and The Amazing Spider-Man 2, and at the time of recording he is currently filming the short film Downward Dog. Leaf also works as a professional chef, is a licensed real estate broker, and also provides acting coaching and improv classes through his company, Leaf's Improv Playhouse. Zakes Mokay playing the part of Kip Kami Jara only had a small handful of roles post Oz, appearing in the second season of NBC's The West Wing in 2000, as well as the ninth episode of season one of Monk in 2002 for the USA Network. Mokay was more active in theatre rather than on screen, and in 1999 directed a production of the August Wilson play Fences, before returning to his native South Africa, a nation in a state of redevelopment under the presidency of Nelson Mandela. In 2005, however, Moke and his second wife relocated back to the US and moved to Las Vegas, Nevada after receiving a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, and was later diagnosed with a form of Alzheimer's disease. Moke didn't slow down, however, as he worked as theatre director for the Nevada Shakespeare Company before suffering a stroke on May 6, 2009. Zakes Moke passed away on September 11, 2009 at his home in Las Vegas. Steve the Aryan is a little bit harder to eulogise as he was uncredited, but I believe he was played by Robert Philip Marcus. Following his appearance on Oz, Robert only had a few further acting roles, those being the pilot for the TV series Trinity in 1998, and the movies At First Sight in 1999, and 2001's The American Astronaut. After being nailed to the floor and carted off to Benchley Memorial, this is the last we see of Richard Sippel, played by David Lansbury. Following his appearance on Oz, David would appear on TV again for HBO in two episodes of Sex and the City, and close out the 90s in the films Macbeth in Manhattan, The Hurricane, and A Stranger in the Kingdom. In the early 2000s, David appeared in minor roles in both Law and Order Criminal Intent and Law and Order Special Victims Unit, as well as the films From Other Worlds and Michael Clayton. In 2012, he appeared as Bane in Broadway's Finest, and in 2013 married his wife Christina, with whom he has a son, Beckett. His last credited role came in 2014 for the comedy drama Valley Inn, where he played the part of Gary. Finally, on the cast side of things, this is the final appearance of Jonathan Cushin, played by comedian Brian Callan, after the character was dropped following the completion of Series 2. Cushin is never referenced on the show again, meaning that he is one of the few characters to be written off without a death or released. He's also one of only a handful of characters to not receive the crime flashback treatment, and his conviction and sentence is unknown, so there is the possibility that Kenshin was paroled off-screen, however there is no reference to that having happened. Becoming another member of the Oz cast to appear in Frasier, which he did in 1999 in the show's seventh season, Brian Callan has made a career out of appearing in minor roles on TV, including appearances in CSI, Sex and the City, and The West Wing as well as recurring roles on shows such as Inside Schwartz on NBC, Seventh Heaven on the WB, and Fat Actress on Showtime, and in more recent years has appeared as Coach Meller in both The Goldbergs and its spin-off series Schooled, both of which aired on ABC. Brian has also appeared in a number of films, mainly in small comedic roles, including Bad Santa, Old School, Scary Movie 4, and the first two installments of the Hangover trilogy. He's set to appear in the upcoming movie Joker, set for release in October, playing the part of Javier. Away from TV and film, Brian co-wrote and starred in the web series Dream Crushers, along with fellow actors Will Sasso, Sarah Rowe, and Scott Thompson, before launching the 10-minute podcast in 2012, again with Will Sasso, before leaving the show in 2015 to focus on the Fighter and the Kid podcast, launched in 2013 and still running today, which Callan hosts along with former UFC heavyweight fighter Brendan Sharp. In addition to all his TV, film, and podcasting ventures, Callan still performs as a stand-up comic, 
releasing the albums Never Grow Up in 2016, Complicated Apes in March of this year, and in July released his latest special, Man Class. Over on the production side of the coin, this was the last of the three episodes of the show directed by Sean Desagonzak. Post-Oz, Jean has continued to work as a director and worked on a number of US TV mainstays, with directing credits for CSI, the Law & Order franchise directing 11 episodes of the original show as well as 32 episodes of Law & Order Criminal Intent, and 43 episodes of Law & Order Special Victims Unit, reuniting with Oz alumni Christopher Maloney. Other directing credits include episodes of Gossip Girl on the CW network, six episodes of Boss on Stars, as well as multiple episodes of Chicago Fire, working again with Eamon Walker. In addition to his TV work, John also directed TV movies such as Exiled, Code 1114, and Future Tense, as well as the direct-to-video sequel movie Mimic 2. In 2009, Jean wrote the teleplay and directed the action-adventure sci-fi Lost City Riders, and his most recent credits are for five episodes of the TV series FBI, which is set to return to CBS in September 2019. Also leaving the show is Sean Jablonski, who received special thanks credits throughout Series 2 alongside his teleplayer credits. After leaving Oz, Sean is credited as a writer on the TV series The Hoop Life, which originally ran on Showtime in 1999. In 2001, Sean wrote on four episodes of Law & Order, as well as receiving producer credits on 20 episodes from 2001 to 2002. However, Sean's big break came in 2003, working on the Ryan Murphy-created FX show Nip Tuck, writing 17 episodes from 2003 to 2010, as well as receiving credits as producer, supervising producer, co-executive producer, and executive producer over the course of the show, as well as directing an episode in the show's fourth season, and three episodes in the fifth season. Sean has also written and produced episodes of Suits for USA Network, and in 2014 created the drama series Satisfaction, which ran on USA Network for two seasons. Sean's most recent credits include 2017's Gypsy, where he again received writing and producer credits, and in 2019 wrote two episodes and served as an executive producer alongside Robert Zemeckis on Project Blue Book for the History Channel, which is set to return for a second season in the near future. My episode MVP I am going to award to Miguel Alvarez, purely for the acting of Kirk Acevedo for the scenes in Ray's office. Like I mentioned before, I thought his scattiness and incoherence really added to the situation that Miguel had found himself in. And you really did get a feel that he was trapped with no place to go, and he got across that fear that Miguel has of turning out the same way as his grandfather. So for that reason, Miguel Alvarez gets the episode MVP. As for the MVP for Series 2 as a whole, this was a little harder to choose, because we've seen so much growth from a number of characters. We got to know Augustus a lot more this series, rather than him just being the narrator, and there were significant contributions from Saeed and Poet. However, with two episode MVP wins and being in the running for more on a number of occasions, I have to give the series MVP to Tim McManus. Having nearly died in his own creation and having to wrestle with his conscience a number of times, McManus has had to make a number of key decisions throughout the series affecting both the operation of M-City, as well as his personal life. Despite the riot occurring and the fallout that came with it, it's a testament to his work ethic that he is still determined to make M-City work, and as a result allow certain inmates to leave as better people. While he may be guilty of falling victim to naivety on occasion, and with ongoing interference and setbacks caused by Governor Devlin, we've seen that McManus truly believes that the justice system will prevail in the end, and he is determined to find the good in everyone. So for those reasons, McManus wins the Series 2 MVP. An honourable mention for the award also goes to Chris Keller. 
We've had a plethora of new characters join the show over the course of the series, but none have had the impact that Keller has made since coming to Oz. In a very short space of time, he's managed to send Beecher, a man on the road to recovery, into a fragile state by manipulating him on a journey into darkness following his wife's death and spiral back into alcohol, to the point where Beecher is now in a worse place than he's ever been during his incarceration. While he only appeared in four episodes, his joining the show I felt warranted its own trailer on the podcast, and his actions have far-reaching consequences on the Beecher Schillinger storyline going forward. So, the Roll Call of the Dead for Series 2 stands at 15, up from the 11 we had in Series 1, which is an increase of 36.3%, and averaging 1.9 deaths per episode, also up from Series 1's 1.38. Those that died, by which I mean they were named to have died in this series, include... Number 1, Scott Ross, murdered by Diane Whittlesley during the Emerald City Riot. Number two, Eugene Dobbins, killed after being stabbed by an inmate in the early stages of the riot. Number three and number four, officers Eddie Hunt and Anthony Nowakowski, killed by gunfire from the sort during the riot. Numbers five through eight, unnamed inmates, killed by gunfire from the sort during the riot. Number nine, Nino Shabetta, died after ingesting ground-up glass that had been secretly mixed into his food over a period of time by both Ryan and Adebisi. Number 10, Alexander Vogel, murdered by the Aryan Brotherhood, found hanging upside down and naked in the gym after having his throat cut. Number 11, Freaky, killed after falling from the upper floor of M-City, accidentally being pushed over the guardrail by Richie Hanlon. Number 12, Genevieve Beecher, officially committed suicide by asphyxiation, although questions remain about whether or not she was murdered on the orders of Schillinger. Numbers 13 and 14, Mark Mack and Steve the Aryan, died by asphyxiation after being buried by dirt following the collapse of an underground tunnel they were using to escape Oz. And number 15, Kipkami Jara, stabbed in the back by Kenny in the kitchen. As for the show overall, the Series 2 IMDb rating averages out at an 8.3, down slightly from the 8.6 average for Series 1, but nothing massive between the two numbers, indicating that they are on a par with each other. I'd say that's probably a fair assessment overall. Series 1, you had a lot of scene setting and building of the main characters, whereas Series 2 seemed more focused on world building within Oz itself. We saw a lot more of Gen Pop in this series than we did in Series 1, and also went to solitary confinement more often. In terms of awards for Series 2 of Oz, Rita Moreno repeated her win at the American Latino Media Arts Awards, winning her second award for Outstanding Actress in a Drama Series, which also saw Luna Lauren Velez nominated for her role as Dr. Gloria Nathan, while Kirk Acevedo was nominated in the Outstanding Actor in a Drama Series category, and the show itself was nominated for Outstanding Drama Series. At the third annual Golden Satellite Awards, judged by the International Press Academy, Ernie Hudson won the Best Actor Drama Series Award, while the show won the award for Best Drama, beating ER, NYPD Blue, The Pretender, and The X-Files. Rita Marino was also nominated in the Best Actress Drama Series category. The Online Film and Television Awards also saw the show nominated for a number of awards. These included the Best Episode of a Cable Series, in which the episodes Animal Farm and Escape from Oz were both nominated, Best Writing in a Cable Series, Best Direction in a Cable Series, Best Ensemble Cast in a Cable Series, and three nominations in the Best Guest in a Cable Series category for Charles S. Dutton, David Lansbury, and the award winner Christopher Maloney. Rita Marino was nominated in Best Actress in a Cable Series, losing out to Oz co-star Edie Falco, who won for her role as Carmela Soprano in The Sopranos, 
while Terry Kinney and Ernie Hudson were both nominated for Best Actor in a Cable Series, with the show nominated for Best Cable Series. Alexa L. Fogel repeated her win at the Casting Society of America Awards for Best Casting for TV Dramatic Episodic, while at the NAACP Image Awards, Rita Marina and Charles S. Dutton were nominated in the Outstanding Lead Actress in a Drama Series and Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Drama Series categories respectively. Finally, this series also saw Oz receive its only nominations at the Primetime Emmy Awards, in which Alexa L. Fogel was nominated for Outstanding Casting in a Series, while Charles S. Dutton was nominated in the Outstanding Guest Actor in a Drama Series category. So for those keeping score, that's a total of 5 wins from 24 nominations for Series 2, bringing the amount of awards won by the show up to a total of 11 so far. And in the result of Homicide or Nomicide, Zix Mokay did not feature in an episode of Homicide Life on the Street prior to this episode of Oz, or in fact at all. So well done if you answered correctly on that one. So that is everything for Series 2 of Inside Oz. If you want to catch up or just go back and listen to any of the previous episodes, you can do so by heading on over to iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast, Castro Podcasts, Overcast, Castbox, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode, and also leave a five-star review wherever you can to help with the exposure for the podcast and help it land on the charts. And if you have any Oz-related or non-related questions or comments, you can get in touch with the show by emailing insideozpodcast at gmail.com or on social media at both Instagram and Twitter by using the handle at insideozpodcast. Next time, much like I did at the end of Series 1, we're going to be having a bit of fun as I bring you Outside Oz number 3. I did have in mind what I wanted to do for this, but since then I've come across something else which I thought might be fun to do. And if I'm totally honest, I'm still in two minds about which one to go with, so you'll have to wait and see which one I choose. But as always, you can follow the updates with whatever I decide over on the social media accounts. But until then, I have been Neil Thompson, and I will catch you on the next episode of Inside Oz, the world's only Oz Review Podcast. Take care, everyone. Yeah.